Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 5 of The Coriolis Effect. As it once was, so shall it be again. I'm Matthew. And I'm Dave. And today we've got a load of stuff to talk about in World of Gaming. Uh, there's uh, Dragon Meat coming up. We have some... Oh, we're very excited about Dragon Meat. Yep, yeah, it's only... Oh, I know, it's just over a month away, isn't it? Yep, yeah, so excellent. We're looking forward to that. So we've got a few bits to talk about that. Um, Matthew, you're going to talk a little bit about Spire, Kickstarter that's ongoing at the moment, and a couple of other things that are are there. Um, things that we might otherwise also think about in World of Gaming. Um, goodbye to Google+. G+, is going. Uh, that's a pity, as far as I'm concerned. And a couple of other things. I might just briefly talk about uh, uh, the last game of Star Trek Adventures that we had uh, with my brother running it. So a couple of things, a couple of reflections from that. Then your essay, Matthew, is Zenithian Hegemony. You were charged with your homework. Yes. So I'm really uh, looking forward to hearing what you have to say about that. And then we've been putting out a lot of actual plays on games that are not Coriolis. And we did talk a little bit about uh, games that aren't Coriolis as well. So I think we're going to have a little chat later on about... Should we broaden the scope a bit more formally and do a, an essay or two on other games? I mean, we talk about other games anyway, but let's have a chat about that later on. I unfortunately don't have a Spectral Corsair update this week. The game we were going to have a couple of days ago got postponed due to uh, ill health. Um, that'll be running in a couple of weeks' time, so I'll be able to update you next time. But I was given a little bit of work by you, Matthew, about designing... Uh, what I've called the Star Singer City Ship, which is basically the, the Liberator, the Liberator from Blake Seven, and um, so I've had a little look at that, trying to make it a bit more interesting than just your bog standard Coriolis spacecraft. So um, I will, uh, I'll talk about I'm that a bit later. Very on. eager to hear what you've done on that one. Um, yeah, okay. So it might be uh, we well, might stay within the hour. Then, today, <laughs> if you haven't got a Spectral Corsair episode for you to rabbit on about in the way you always do. <laughs> well, you, you haven't got an update for yours either, have you? Um, uh, no, I haven't. We're, um, we're, we're never, maybe... I say we're, we're never knowingly um, under verbose, are we? I think we are, <laughs> we are loquacious, shall we say. We can always find enough words to fill an hour or two, can't we? <laughs> Uh, however, I am on the clock this time because it's uh, we're recording this on a Friday morning, and uh, the family and I are going to see the Tolkien exhibition at the Bodleian Library in Oxford Hello. later today. So we've got to be out shortly. So let's get cracking on with the world of gaming. Go on then. Uh, let's start off, shall we, with Dragon Meat because I'm getting quite excited by that, and we've got some big plans. And you have been talking to Nils from Freel Again, and you've got some exciting news from them. Yeah, well, we've had it confirmed now that uh, Nils and the other Free League guys, including some of the old Yen Ring and guys I think Matthias is planning to come over, are going to be coming over. And um, Matthias, uh, Nils and I were talking about the the tournament idea, the, the Grindbone Slave tournament um, that, I, that, that I proposed that we might want to run as part of the podcast zone. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, he's quite... Um, so he, he's gone away and had to think about it. And what Free League are going to do at Dragon Meet is use it as their unofficial, informal, maybe, UK launch for Forbidden Lands. 
So he's talking to Modiphius about how they might manage that. And as part of that, I said to him, well, um, you know, is therefore, do we want to use this tournament as something, as part of that launch? Um, and he went, hmm, interesting idea. And he's gone off to check logistics and stuff with the Modiphius guys. Um, so it would be interesting to see what comes out of that. But we're definitely going ahead. Uh, I need to talk to... Um, Dan from the podcast zone who's organizing the room so he's already agreed that we've got that booked up to uh, in the afternoon to actually run the uh, the character creation part of it and then the fights that that, that we're going to put people through and the actual tournament itself so that's great we've got that room booked so yeah we're all looking good a few things to organize still on the logistics side but uh, I think we're all go for the grindbone tournament sounds good to me Grindbone, excellent. This is really good. And of course, if if it is going to be part of the informal launch of Forbidden Lands in the UK, we ought to try and tap Nils for some prizes. <laughs> I haven't broached that yet with him, but you know, <laughs> you know how generous they were when we were over there last year. So I I would suspect that we might be able to chuck out a, a copy of Forbidden Lands or two. Um, cool. I'm hoping. Cool. Well, I'm, let's keep our fingers crossed for that. I mean, on that point. Do, will we have our copies of Forbidden Lands in our hands by then, do you think? Well, there's an interesting thing, because that's the other uh, bit of World of Gaming news. Um, you and I uh, and uh, Tony and Andy have got our little gaming retreat at the beginning of next month, just a week away. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> um, and we were, well, at least three of us were looking forward to bringing with us our fancy new boxes of Forbidden Lands. We were. And it looks like we're not going to be getting those no. next week. Uh, shipping uh, has been delayed by cult divinity lost the bastards bastards um, how dare they they're taking up all of um of uh, games quest's time games quest of the distributors based just two miles away from where i live so actually i could go there and i could grab my copy of forbidden lands just steal it out of their warehouse well, can you get if i wanted can you get mine as well or three <laughs> <laughs> Hmm, you know, maybe maybe <laughs> I should drop them a line and see if they'll, uh, well, why not? they'll well, do that. Hang on, but what, the problem is what, they probably haven't even got as far as collating them all yet. Well, what you do like is you ring up and you say, this is Matthew from the Coriolis Effect. And they will then yeah, drop so. everything to get your, your <laughs> and my boxes sorted out and given to us. Bear in mind, I'll say, we have 400-odd subscribers around the world. You could be ruined if we give you a bad name. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Worth <laughs> uh, um, a yeah, try, well, Worth uh, a try. So, uh, apparently, uh, shipping is due to start the day we come back from our gaming retreat. Mm. So, um, uh, But that's still you know, quite good news, because that means in about three weeks, people should be seeing their copies arriving or people should have copies arrived on their doorstep and um we could all be leafing through those luxurious leather bound books mm. i say leather bound obviously fake leather <laughs> um yeah it's in, I'm, I'm very keen to get it because thinking about the tournament um well we had a game of forbidden lands a few weeks ago that you ran we, yep. we obviously With the last episode of which has just uh, uh came out last yeah, week excellent. On, on our stream. yeah well done um but we didn't use the advanced combat rules with the cards because obviously nope. we didn't have the cards. Now, mm. I have I don't have, I don't have any great sense yet how long a combat is going to take using the card 
advanced process as opposed to using the process that we're all familiar with, uh, you know, just rolling the dice. And I think we're quite keen to use the cards as combat for the tournament, but I've got no sense. You know, we, we, are, have we, are, we are. We do some practice with that. We do. And time it and all sorts of we stuff. Are, we are time bound. You know. We are time limited on how much time we've got for the tournament. So, um, you know, if that. I want to get my hands on the game so I can work out as soon as possible how practical it is to run all of those combats using the advanced rules. Yeah. Because um, we might find it takes forever, uh, particularly yeah, for, for and, new and people. Yeah, we've got doing to factor it. in explaining it, haven't we? Exactly. To those guys yeah. as well. So it, and we've got to be really quite proficient with it ourselves. So, yeah. um, so it might be that we would, you know, reluctantly have to fall back on the normal rules for the tournament, which is to be great fun, but it's a great opportunity yes. to showcase the advanced rules uh, as well. And I think half the fun of the tournament is going to be creating your character using legends and adventures as well. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> creating your halfling peddler who doesn't even start with a knife. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. then sending him into the arena and grind bone. And then we find out what grind bone actually means. <laughs> yeah. I'm really looking forward to killing a few halfling peddlers. So it has to yeah, be said. me too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, right, there's, there's, um, there's no re-rolls, guys. So if you do come along to the to the to the tournament and you play, there are no re-rolls. You get what you get, and you know you get what you get. Yes. But um, still, you know, you never know. The, the uh, half halfling peddler could still batter somebody's brains out with a rock. I guess. Yeah, and remember, hard halfling peddlers are difficult to hit. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. So we shall we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, so we've got our weekend of gaming coming up. Mm. We've already mentioned. Um, what are we playing? We're going to be playing Forbidden Lands, aren't we? We are. You're going to run. You Forbidden guys Lands. have demanded that I run Forbidden Lands as well as a game of Coriolis. Yep. The last time we played, you and I played Coriolis together, was at a year ago at the last gaming. Yeah, retreat. it was, wasn't it? Um, so it's about time we played some Coriolis again. Uh, what else have we got on the cards? So I'm going to run the next episode of Simba Room. Um, mm -hmm. So that'll be following on from the the last scenario we ran, which we have all recorded and in the bank is just sitting there waiting for me to to edit. Now, I hope to get the first one out in the next few days with a bit of luck. Going to work on it over the weekend. So um, be ready for some more tales from the... Um, uh, from the Inn of the Lonesome Ogre. Not the loop. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> or Ravenland. Or even no. From the Lonesome Ogre. From the yes. Lonesome Ogre. Uh, um, and then... Yeah, and it, this was quite an interesting scenario because it was very city-based. Yes. Wasn't it? Well, I say city. Uh, it's not Settlement. a particularly large city. But it was a civic a civic adventure this time. And I really quite enjoyed that slight change of pace. Mm, yeah, good, good. Well, I wanted... I remember when I first started um, look, thinking about my Simbarium campaign... I wanted to make it feel a bit more local and a bit smaller than some of the stuff we'd done before. You know, the Game of Thrones campaign I ran was, was you know, you were rubbing shoulders with the most exalted people in Westeros. So I wanted to bring it yeah. down and make it smaller in that sense. But it's interesting, in all the um, all the stuff that I've been getting from Yen Ringen, now pre-league, uh, on, in on Simba Room really obviously focuses on the getting out into Davakar Forest and treasure hunting. And I I felt I had a moment where I felt a bit bad about denying you guys that kind of game experience. So I'm really pleased to hear that you enjoyed the last scenario 
um, because, you know, as I said, I wanted to give something that was a bit brooding and a bit darker and a bit smaller, where actually you're worried about little things, you know, like where your next meal is coming from or, you know, going out after dark is a problem rather than worrying about who's going to be king next. Yeah. Well, that's good because um, uh, uh, I do enjoy that. Um, and it makes me think a little bit about Tony's uh, Legends of the Five Ring games we're mm. playing, which I am loving. I'm absolutely loving it. But there's a little bit of discomfort that we are as relatively low-ranking samurai and particularly my uh, monkey clan character, who, you know, is scum of the earth, really. Um, <laughs> and here we are rubbing shoulders with the Empress and yes. doing stuff on the Empress's orders. You know, I'm loving the story. I don't want I don't want I don't want Tony to, to, to stop having the story that we're having. But part of me fe- kind of feels it's a bit wrong to be right up there at the top end of society doing what we're doing and so i'm quite liking our more mundane adventures mm. i don't mind going into the forest of davakar and treasure hunting at any point you want to send us there um <laughs> well that's cool but i'm you never know what happens in the next stuff. scenario no we shall wait and see <laughs> yes um, talking of city and civic adventures actually um i'm half inclined to back a kickstarter i um have been recommended um, funny enough, it's one that I saw. It's it's a follow up. It's a bit like um, one of Jan Ringen's um, you know adventure modules. Yeah. Uh, for for a game called Spire, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game, featuring a city of elves, mm-hmm. you will play effectively Drow, who are the worker drone class elves in this uh, city, and at the top of the spire are all the high elves. And they're the ruling class, and you're all scum. Did you basically. talk to me about this before? Because this does ring a we bell. We might have spoken about this yeah. years ago on on this very podcast. Yeah. Um, probably about a year ago or, okay. or earlier. I remember you talking uh, about something that was where you'd be playing Drow. Yeah. Well, it must be it. Yeah. And 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 for many reasons, not least of which, I I hate Drow. Uh, <laughs> I didn't back it last time. But one of, well, I don't know if it was one of our listeners or somebody that looked at my um, my blog, but definitely somebody took my recommendation for it and bought it or kicked in at that thing and loved it. And they're doing a new Kickstarter now um, called Strata, which is, if you like, the first expansion pack or adventure pack for Spire. Uh, and I'm being persuaded by that person that I should kick in on that. Right. And, of course, they're doing lots of levels a bit like... Um, a bit like uh, Young Ringen did, where you can get stuff that came from the previous Kickstarter yeah. um, included. So I might do that, but uh, if anybody's interested, have a look at Spire. It's haunting me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you, you have a, a anticipation that it's going to be good, do you? <sighs> now, you see, it's powered by the Apocalypse, and I, I there's some, I've got some Powered by the Apocalypse You like games. that, don't We've you? We've hardly yeah. played them. I very much like the Warren, which I think might be my very favourite Powered by the Apocalypse Oh, this is the um, Rabbits at Passchendaele, isn't it? The Rabbits at Passchendaele, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, that's just one of the adventures. You can have Rabbits who aren't at Passchendaele as well, if you want to live. Um, I quite like the idea uh, of having a one-off, one-shot game playing a rabbit at Passchendaele. Yeah, no, well, you know, we we should consider that. Maybe, uh, Maybe if we, if we have 
time. No, it's not going to happen. We won't have time. Every <laughs> and, uh, weekend, gaming no. weekend. <laughs> um, so I really like that, and I'm a bit. And there's another game that I'd like to do, but have never run called Night Witches, where you're all uh, lesbian bomber pilots from the <laughs> Second World War, the Russian front, uh, which is a true story, by the way. Um, and uh, I'd like to run that one, but I'm just wary of getting too many Powered by the Apocalypse games I don't play. So yeah. I don't yet. I'm not quite convinced I want to get it. <sighs> mm. um, so many, yeah, have so we covered many, everything? So many games, so little time. That's the problem, yeah. and, isn't it? Well, That's fundamentally the problem. Well, on that note, I, I didn't back Judge Dredd in the end. Uh, although no, I, no. I, I undeniable. You'd almost persuaded yourself last time. Uh, yeah, I... I thought about it long and hard because, like you, I've got so many games I want to play that I don't get time to play. You know, particularly, uh, actually, as a player, playing Coriolis, the last time I did that was a year ago. You know, yeah. which, okay, I run the game, but playing it, uh, you know, that, that really just demonstrates... what you wanted to do. The whole reason I came down on this is because you wanted me to run it. Exactly. So, and now I end up running it most of the time rather than playing it myself. But, so that really just... You know, throws into sharp relief. Yeah, how much how much time we get for gaming, and it's not so much time because I do game a lot more now than I did a few years ago by making the effort to try and get mm. a week uh, a midweek game going. But um, it's it's lining all the planets up to play the games that you want with the people you want to play them with, and so playing Coriolis with you GMing it, yeah, we're going to play it once a year, aren't we? Which is a pity, but uh, yeah, so be it. But um, so I, I thought about Judge Dredd. In the end, I, I, I concluded that if, if I backed it, I would have done it for nothing other than nostalgic reasons about the game we used to play and the old version mm. that I've still got on my shelf uh, here at home. And on that basis, I wouldn't play it much. And I wasn't, you know, I'd get it and go, oh, lovely. And I'd look at it and I'd enjoy reading it. But then I'd put it on the shelf without any real aspiration to play it. So that was why... I decided not to yeah. go down that road on this occasion. So That's probably the right decision. I think it's the right decision. I've got quite a lot of Kickstarter stuff that's due to arrive sometime soon. Yeah. You know, free we've got um Forbidden Lands, we've got the Yinderos expansion, which is should be coming on my doorstep in the next few weeks. I've got uh, Nemesis board game, which again should arrive before Christmas. We've got Crusader Kings. We've got Western at some got Western, point. Western, yeah. So I mean, I've got loads of stuff out there that's you know slowly making its way here i guess um but judge dread wasn't one i wanted to add to that list not now anyway no. um the other thing i was going to briefly mention under under the game um, world of gaming was game of star trek adventures had the other day oh yes you did mention so that. um yeah. ended up being just me and connor as players with tony running it because um uh, you know, with Morgan and Dean off at uni, um, the other guys sometimes find it quite hard to get there. So that didn't matter. We had a really good game, but it was a it was a space combat game. It was the first time we'd played with the space combat rules, and we'd oh. got we'd gone through this porthole, this um, this wormhole we'd found, found some Borg ships on the other side, quickly came back, um, but they'd seen us and they sent a Borg sphere after us. So we had it was great. Yes. It was great. I mean, I really really enjoyed it. It was such good fun. Um, but I think that was in spite of the rules rather than because of them. Ah, because that's interesting. The rules, and it, 
admittedly, it was the first time we were doing it, so we were still finding our way quite a lot. And as the um, as the session went on, everything got a bit slicker, and we got we got through it in a much more uh, effective way. But it just every, every everyone on the ship, everyone in a uh, a particular position console on the ship gets an action each turn, effectively. And yeah, that's fine. But the the thing that got me it's like I said before, you you can't lock phases, although you can use momentum or something to perhaps mimic that effect narratively. Yes. Um, yeah. But we had uh, so we were waiting. In this campaign, we've kind of team. We're in the middle of the Shackleton Expanse. We're in the middle of nowhere, exploring new new worlds and trying to find new civilizations. But we've teamed up with a Romulan warbird. Um, that we've managed to help. They were, they were our competitors for a while, but then their engines blew up because they couldn't fly as fast as we did and we rescued them. So they're our ally. And we were sitting there waiting, all weapons trained on this wormhole, waiting for the Borg sphere to come through. And I had an expectation that I could be I could fire everything. You know, as soon as the Borg sphere appeared, I could fire my phasers, I could fire my quantum torpedoes, I could fire my photon torpedoes. And, you know, we've been preparing this for this for five hours as the the crew on the ship and it appeared and I could do one thing before the Borg got to act. It's like, well, hang on. Surely I'd have, I've got a crew of 800. I can have one person on each weapon system. I can have, you know, and that, that was a bit of a disappointing start. Um, and then it just felt very cumbersome going through all the, you know, all the different consoles. So I really mm. enjoyed it. The, the, the session was, was great fun and it was exciting meeting the Borg for the first time and for my character who is the grandson of Hikaru Sulu commanding the Excelsior um, I'm loving that it's great it's really good really really cool and fun um, but I just felt the rules felt a bit clunky um, so in terms of space combat because of course you're more experienced than I am because I've never run any space combat even in um, Coriolis how does it compare with a Coriolis rule set in principle it's similar because it gives every player uh, uh, a role in the combat a thing to do yeah yeah i think this is probably maybe made slightly more cumbersome because we in effect had two non-player character ships on our side and then you had the enemy yeah. borg sphere um so there was a lot of npc action happening whilst mm. connor and i weren't doing anything even though we did roll for the npcs but still it was um, it became a bit cumbersome. You know, I think for me, I the Coriolis one. I think we've got it to the point where it works well, and I've only had one occasion where I've run a combat in space with more than one ship versus one ship. I think so. Actually, it moves quite quickly. And you know me, my my approach to GMing is I just make it up as I go along if I need to to keep the keep the momentum. Um, yeah. Yeah, but you only get six momentum maximum in Star Trek, <laughs> and of course you lose one ra- you lose one momentum in every scene because uh, you're meant to use them, not hoard them. Yeah. Well, we did. We used them lots. <laughs> so uh, the momentum was well uh, spent. And did anybody, on passing over a momentum advantage to another player, say phases are locked, Captain? <laughs> um. No, no, no. So the yeah, the captain's the captain's role. So you game through in for you. The captain's role in space combat in Star Trek is largely about 
giving either an advantage to another player or momentum, generating momentum. Mm. So yeah, which of course is similar to, you know, the the, the command role in um, Coriolis. In Coriolis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think probably in principle it's very similar, but I I, I find that the rules for Star Trek Adventures just feel really dense, and I'm yeah. I'm enjoying it. I'm I'm really enjoying it as a, as a player experience, but yeah, you've got your values and your inspiration, I think it's called, and your talents. I I don't really know what any of them do. Certainly not my talents, which are supposed to be giving me bonuses and stuff. So it, I don't mm. know. It, it, I'm loving it. Uh, you know, I'm really loving it. Makes me it, wonder but... whether a Year Zero engine hack of Star Trek would be a thing that you could do. When you start talking about values and you think about, you know, you, that 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 could work a bit like your um uh your 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 pride mm. in uh, in forbidden yeah. lands and of course talents are talents seem to work really well in in whatever version that we use them in of of year zero engine yes so a star trek year zero hack <laughs> might be fun maybe yeah well think about that yeah oh there's just one other bit of news of course that we ought to discuss in the world of gaming before we finish and that is the not imminent, but definitely forecast within the next year, demise of Google Plus. Yeah. Yeah. Because we like Google Plus, don't we? I do. I mean, I'm not very tech savvy and I've got used to Google Plus and I enjoy using it. It's easy and it's Mm. accessible. Um, So, yeah, I'm really disappointed about that. And I just have to find, I don't know what the next generation, you know, where everyone's going to move to. You know there are some yeah there are some Facebook groups that I've joined, but they don't seem to be either as active or for me anyway as easy to access and discuss things as Google Plus has been. No, and in terms of getting feedback on our podcast, our little podcast that we do, do people know that we do a podcast that comes out <laughs> every three weeks or so? How many um, how many downloads? And feedback that? we get. <laughs> oh, well, we can talk about that in a bit, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, the feedback we get from Google Plus is some of the best, most constructive feedback. Absolutely, um, and, and it's actually most of the feedback comes from Google Plus. So it's a, as a community of, um, uh, you know, as a community of of our listeners, I'm I'm sad that's going to go, and I don't know where we go to recreate that. No, we've got our page on Facebook. We get some comments on Facebook. They're lovely comments. Nobody's ever rude to us, which is lovely. Um, <laughs> Not to our we're faces. We're on Twitter, anyway. and yeah. you know. And people are nice to us on Twitter too, but the really good, constructive, considered feedback comes through Google Plus, and I don't know the community that's going to take it over. Some people are moving over to a thing called MeWe. I'm nervous to do that until I understand what their business model is. Um, uh, there's uh, Discord, of course, which is a more chatty type thing, but not none of it quite has the functionality of Google Plus. No. Yeah, so. I'm a bit gutted. I, I think I'm hoping, uh, I don't know, some massive community of gamers is going to rise up and buy Google Plus on Google <laughs> and carry it on. Um, but uh, maybe not. No, seems unlikely, I think. But I guess we ought to get on with the whole programme, though. If anybody's got any ideas where they're going to get their Coriolis fix, do come and tell us Yes. Uh, on Google Plus while it's still here <laughs> yeah. or through, through any of our forms of feedback, uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, send us an email to coriolis at fictionsuit.org. Um, 
any any uh, you know, give us give us some feedback tell us where you're going where you'd like us to um to live in terms of social media and we'll we'll have a think about that yeah but i guess getting on with the program i want to talk about space fascists and um <laughs> i've got a pre-recorded piece which i wanted to call um what should we do with a problem like the zenithian hegemony <laughs> Which doesn't really scan, but it's got Nazis in it, which is important. I'm going to say it straight. The Zenithian hegemony are the bad guys. The syndicate are actual criminals, of course, but the hegemony are the evil empire. I put it to you that this is the faction you should love to hate. The Zenithian hegemony is imperialism writ large. No, more than that. The Zenithian hegemony are racists, plain and simple, convinced that they are superior to the first come and obsessed with preserving their Alarden bloodlines. Their attitudes are so extreme that they spurn biosculpting and cybernetics because of their obsession with blood purity. Indeed, they consider themselves superior to other Zenithian factions like the Consortium who have intermingled culturally with the first come though some first come might qualify for acceptance into the hegemony. They have a branch of science, hemographers, tasked with surveying, recording and testing pure Zenithian bloodlines. I imagine it's those professionals who identified the expatriates living in Z, a domed city on Amido. Though their forebears arrived with the first come, they claim to be related to the families that left Alada in the zenith. In keeping with the duality that Freer Ligan build into all their work, there is a less racist part of the hegemony. Some, who call themselves Neo-Zenithians, at least believe in cooperating with the consortium and even some first come. It is this slightly more liberal but I'm sure just as patronisingly superior part of the faction which created the Judicators to help police Coriolis. When I read on page 206 that the Zenithian hegemony sends people to the courtesan academies of Alam's temple to be, quote, taught the mysteries of subjectivity and sensory input, I can only assume it's the Neo-Zenithian families. Their hegemonists are surely too arrogant to think that they can learn anything from a first-come faction. Their arrogance is somewhat justified. Their elite pilots and so-called peacock troops defeated the Legion, who were, and I quote, originally hired by the consortium to wipe out the fleets of the Zenithian hegemony, but suffered terrible losses and retreated instead being tasked with hunting corsairs. The consortium obviously backed off after that, but they were right to try, I think. The hegemony obviously intend to replace the consortium as a supreme Zenithian power in the horizon. And if the hegemony achieved their ambitions and took over from the consortium to become the most powerful faction in the horizon, what would life be like under them? We can glimpse that terrible future in the conglomerate, the city that surrounds the hegemony's base of operations. 
They leave most of the daily affairs to hired Algolan colonists, who in turn rule the plebeians and slummers with an iron fist. What are Algolans famous for? Their slave trade. No one with any sense of fair play wants the hegemony in charge. So, how do they work in play? Could they be a client or patron for your crew? Possibly. Very probably one that you don't like very much. Let's explore possibilities for each of the group concepts. Free traders will work for anyone for the right price. If the Zenithian hegemony are handing out work to any trader without a blood connection, it's probably dirty work they don't want to be connected with, like smuggling slaves from Algol to the factories of the conglomerate. Alternatively, if you have a blood connection with one of the families, you could get a franchise on a more lucrative route, which, while perfectly legal, you might still find a little distasteful. I'm thinking something like the British Empire's opium trade, transporting the drug to China and bringing tea back to the empire. Mercenaries might get a job enforcing trade. When the uppity Chinese tried to stop the British selling drugs to their populace, the empire sent the gunboats in to ensure the trade continued. The Zenithian hegemony doesn't need mercenaries. They have some of the finest militaries and fleets in the horizon, but they might subcontract some work out to a mercenary company with the right connections. Actually, if your players want a military campaign, there is a concept I am half inspired to develop and run, but I'll tell you about that later. Explorers might well find employment seeking out the lost colonies of true-blood relatives that the hegemony believe might have arrived on their nadir, or indeed travelling with the first come but descended from those members of the great families that were left behind when Zenith and Adir left Alada. Or you might be seeking out portal builder relics for them. Actually, though, I think it's more likely that some Hegenemy archaeologist is your rival, like Dr. Belloc or Major Tot in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Agents? These are your enemies. The Astaban seem to be set up as antagonists for your player characters rather than allies or patrons. As it says on page 215, they are not prone to hiring freelancers, but it happens, if unofficially. If they only hand out the shady jobs to free traders, then the sort of work they give to freelance agents is going to be really dirty, with ultimate deniability. Take a mission from the Astaban and I reckon you're expected not to survive. And if you do, I have a sneaking suspicion that you may have a terrible accident later on when you least expect it. Could you play Astaban agents? Could your character be a factionary in the Zenithian hegemony? Do you want to play arrogant, racist, secret policemen? I'm reminded of what Dennis Detweiler and Greg Stolze said about playing Nazis in their excellent World War II superheroes game, Godlike, or rather, in Will to Power, their supplement about the SS. In fact, let me read you some choice lines from that book, an answer to a hypothetical question about playing the game 
with SS player characters. Quote, Well, I can't stop you, but if you do, you're an idiot. If you want to play a black uniform-wearing baby killer, if that's what gets you off, go ahead. But don't pretend this book is inviting you to do so. The characters, organisations and facilities presented within are targets for the player's characters to kill, disrupt and destroy. Yep, I'm calling it. The hegemonists are space Nazis. Pilgrims? What sort of pilgrims would they be? Atheist blood cult space Nazi pilgrims? Looking for the lost tribe of the Nadir? Hmm... I've had to put my Nazarene sacrifice campaign on hold to concentrate on my thesis. But those mad, chaotic, evil, Cadover clock-building nutters are preferable to the cold, calculating, lawful evil of the Zenithian hegemony. Actually, I quite like the idea of giving a character the problem pure-blood Zenithian heritage. If you are descended from one of the great families, you could find yourself rescued from a dire situation in a deus ex machina extraction by a hegemonic strike team. Indeed, you might find yourself being rescued when you didn't think you needed rescuing, if there is any danger of being brainwashed by anti-Zenithian interests. Seriously, though, how could player characters come from the Zenithian hegemony without their players having to wash the foul taste of racism out of their brains afterwards? I have an idea that has been floating about in the back of my head for decades. I remember sitting in my dad's study when I lived with my parents to plot some of it out. It was for Traveller, but not set in space. Rather, it was planet-based, on a sort of luxurious university planet called Academe. It was a mix of Oxford, West Point and those universities in Victorian-era Germany where students would duel and wear their facial scars as a badge of honour. I imagine the players as privileged students with many, many surnames, competing for house points, uncovering deeper mysteries and realising that their idyllic life was serviced by an underclass that never saw the daylight of the sculpted landscapes in which they had their adventures. It didn't go anywhere back then, but I think a story set in and around a hegemonic military academy might be quite fun. Think of it as part Harry Flashman and part Harry Potter, with a dash of Jane Austen thrown in for good measure. Everyone would be a scion of one of the major families, and would get to wear a colourful uniform because, of course, they would also have an honorary rank in one of the family regiments, the so-called Peacock Troops. The good guys in this context would be the Neo-Zenithians, slightly more liberal and patrician in their outlook. The families of Arianites, Lascarid, Vana, Din Eucidia, Aristides would be, in this scenario, like Gryffindor and Hufflepuff. The bad guys would be the hegemonist families, Quasar, Dinhrama, Constantinides, Zenon and Astir. Some Ravenclaw, but the Quasars and the Astirs definitely more Slytherin. Players could choose to be from any family, and initially family rivalries and blood bonds would form the basis of the drama, in the end, though, I hope the characters might see the inherent evil of the hegemonists 
and graduate not to serve the faction, but to fight against it. Thanks, Matt. For me, that's really interesting because I hadn't really looked very much at the Zenithian hegemony. And so when I read your opening or heard your opening statement, uh, you know, they're the bad guys, you know, and you're casting them as effectively space Nazis. That's quite a surprise. That was... um, Okay, well, that's interesting. And uh... it, it, to be honest, it was a bit of a surprise to me, actually. You know, you read about them, you go, yeah, yeah okay, they're, you know, they're a little bit racist or whatever. Um, but you just think about them. But actually, when you when you read about them and just them, and you look at all the references to them throughout the book, they're only ever bad. I mean, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, there's no redeeming features to them whatsoever. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the order, the pariah, have got you know, have got the um, the Samaritans order as well. They do good work. They might they might kill heretics. They also do good work. Yeah, there is no good work that the Zenithian hegemony do. Um, <laughs> Although, I mean, you say as that. Far as I can see. You say that. If they, why are they paying for the judicators? Because surely, the judicators on Coriolis are doing good work. Yeah, I guess. So you've got on Coriolis the guard, and the judicators were created because the guard was so corrupt to to do that. And the judicators, of course, are trained by Alam's temple. Mm. So you know they're more um, uh, touchy feely type uh, judges, but of course they are also teched up. Um, Mega City One judges. Um, I know it, it, it makes you think. Looking at this now, I mentioned, of course, the Judicators are formed by the Neo Zenithians, who are slightly less evil, a little bit more liberal, but I'm sure very patriarchal and very. Um, we know what's best for the world. That could be out of the kindness of their hearts that they're paying that, but I have a sneaking suspicion it's just yet another strategy to undermine the consortium and to take over as the big dogs mm. in the horizon. Well, interesting, though. If um, you know, they're, they're trained by Alarm's Temple, casting your mind back mm. to my, my essay on Alarm's Temple of a few couple of episodes ago, if, if we hold to the idea that Alarm's Temple are trying to influence the good of the horizon from behind the scenes, do these judicators come back from their training fully indoctrinated are they pawns of alarms temple yes to be taught the mysteries of subjectivity yeah. and sensory input indeed <laughs> who are they? well I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting role uh, i think having said it's really difficult i think for players to play characters from the Z- zenithian hegemony i think there is an interesting role for player characters who are adjudicators um now i suspect many people out there in the playing community would like to be judicators. They're a bit maybe they choose not to be or they choose to be ex judicators mm. because they don't want to be stuck on Coriolis well, I was going it to, does look like judicators. Yeah, I was going to ask Go ahead. I was going to ask, are they are other judicators are they like federal marshals where they can roam or are they specifically to Coriolis? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, and I'll have to go through the book again, but I think they're meant to be specifically Coriolis, mm. that they don't go right across the horizon. And where they do, obviously, we have the ability to send them across because of the piece I wrote about way back in, what was it, episode one or two? Um, the um, Yeah, the Ijma Earth. Ijma Earth, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> you have so, a good day with your brain, aren't you, mate? 
Yes, I'm getting old. We are recording quite early, folks. Uh, Early for us, so I think Matthew is struggling. Early morning for us, yes. (laughs) More coffee, Um, more coffee. So, so, so we have given you and I have given me the ability through Injma Earth to explore the whole horizon and to do justice. But I think rules as written, I, I can't swear to it. I'd have to check it out. But I think rules as written or background as written, they stay on Coriolis and they're there specifically. Uh, to cover the jurisdiction of Coriolis. Yeah, okay. Interesting. And also in, in ways that don't, interf- you know, although they they might well um, root out corruption in the Guard, I think there's all sorts of various aspects of what the Guard do on Coriolis that they don't get involved in. So it looks quite limited, but actually I think there's some interesting stuff for a player character who wanted to be adjudicator to find themselves torn between the machinations of the Zenithian hegemony as they try and undermine the consortium and frankly take over and their training from Alarm's temple mm. to actually do their best for the horizon as a whole. Mm-hmm. That would be a lovely duality. That's play, quite interesting. Yeah, I was just about to say something along those lines. I do like the way in that piece that you sort of pull out the character uh, um, concepts, the... Um... The group concepts. Yeah, the group concepts and sort of talk a little bit about each one. And, you know, you might, you do get players who who enjoy playing that kind of, as you described it, lawful evil character. And so I think maybe um, it's, you know, you make a strong case for most players perhaps not wanting to play a, a racist Nazi lawful evil <laughs> guy. But I'm not sure, actually, that... Um, uh, that you might be right there because I think people quite like to play things that are outside of the realms of 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 their actual, you know, day to day character and experience. And you know, yeah, so, now I'm going to lay my cards on the uh, table here. I am a wet liberal. You are. So, you are. You are uh, a drenched liberal rather than a wet liberal. <laughs> so I. I have a serious problem with, you know, I mean, I use that quote about uh, from a game where they're saying, seriously, guys, don't play the SS in this World War II <laughs> yeah. game. And I kind of hold with that. That's, uh, that's a, you know, these guys that, that literally killed, not fi- fictionally killed, literally killed millions of Jews yeah. and all sorts of other people as well. So I'm not interested in playing the SS, even though they have the best uniforms. Um, Although I think there I think I think there's a there's a scale there, though, isn't there? So I think there's there's playing an, an SS officer who is completely sold on it and agrees with everything and is doing taking all these horrendous courses of action with gusto and enthusiasm. Or it might be interesting to play a character who's kind of caught in that and is... What, you mean one who's only following orders? They got hung at Nuremberg as well. I just want to yeah, I, I, no, no, I'm not, I'm not denying that. I'm saying that in terms of a, of a, of an interesting character who is, um, you know, who is torn between following orders and recognizing that what he's doing is, you know, a horrendous, terrible war crime, or he's colluding in that against the fact that if he doesn't follow orders, he and his family will be shot. You know, and so you've got, yes. you know, so I think there is a. You know, there is there is there's something there that I wouldn't automatically rule out playing. I mean, I don't particularly want to play an SS officer, you know, who's a guard at Auschwitz, frankly, um, because again, that's not going to be very much fun. But 
setting up that kind of moral conundrum or or moral sort of crunch point in a fictional setting might be something that'll be interesting to play. Okay, okay. I'll, yeah, I, I might let you do that with that moral conundrum going on, but you've got to remember the hegemony are evil. <laughs> and I think there's some great, you know, if, if you have them as the bad guys, there's some great possibilities. So one thing I didn't talk about, but I'm kind of interested in, is there's a couple of hints in the book that the captain, Captain Abaran Kwasar, is still alive and still running the Zenitian hegemony. Now, just to drive that home, this is the bloke who arrived 70 years ago on the Zenith. Um, so, you know, he's at least 70 years old. Let's assume you don't get to be captain when you're six. Um, <laughs> it's going to be Although hot. there's some interesting stuff there. That if he did arrive as a 12-year-old, that's kind of interesting. But let's assume he was an adult uh, when he arrived. He's a very old man now. Yeah. These guys don't use biosculpting, as we've discovered, and they don't use... Um, uh, bionics to keep themselves alive. So he, he's got some other method of keeping himself um, alive and functioning as captain. And, yeah, you know, that it's... touches a little bit upon the Eternal Emperor in Warhammer 40k. How old can he get? Does he does he plan to, to rule at age 200 uh, over all of the horizon? Perhaps. And maybe, maybe his secret is ginger tea, long walks by the lake, and sushi. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Sorry, it's was... as simple as that. Yeah. So I just um, my my wife is is big into all this health stuff, and she's read a book about <laughs> blue zones, and the blue zones are are places around the world, usually quite small, that um, there is a uh, statistical increase in life expectancy. And so they've mm. gone and investigated. Okay, why do why does everybody here live longer than everybody ever you know ten miles down the road? And it usually comes to things like not eating meat and living a stress free life next to a lake, kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah, uh, I always think lakes are great for that. Actually, so uh, I'm I'm inclined to believe that. But yeah, may, maybe <laughs> that's it. Maybe it's just good living. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm, I mean, to be honest, actually, I'm not really saying that you couldn't possibly be a hegemonist, but I do think, and and you know that sort of scenario setup I, I thought of where uh, you could be, um, you know, at some sort of um, military college because their military <laughs> looks really, really good. We haven't touched on the military at all. I pointed out that they're you know one of the few factions who have defeated the Legion. Um, but they're janissaries. They've got these peacock troops, which has got all the best uniforms. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm sensing uh, quite a lot of commonality between this essay of yours and your one about the De Baron Latifs. In the, yeah, in the, yeah. you were all about the lovely clothes that they would be wearing, and you're also all about running a game at the Latif Academy. And here you are yeah. talking about running a game at the uh, uh, Zenithian Hegemony Academy. So I think you've got... I think I you... probably wouldn't have mentioned that Latif Academy one if I'd read about the properly about the Hegemony first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, this is where I think it fits even better because you can have all sorts of uh, lovely uniforms. Uh, and you're right. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that was that same 30-odd-year-old idea. As I said, in, yes. you know, I was 
thinking about that in my parents' house. I'm 51, for God's sake. I haven't <laughs> lived with my parents for decades. Um, so it's a thing that's always been at the back of my mind. Um, but I think it would work better here, actually, than in the Latif Academy. But yes, the one thing I didn't mention here, because I knew I'd already mentioned it with the Latifs, is I imagine everybody riding around on hover bikes. <laughs> and, and they ride around on hover bikes in this story, too. This is, Actually, so this, is, this, you... this is reminding me of that Not the Nile Court News sketch that we laughed about in um, <laughs> uh, Tales from the Loop, where yes. where they're talking about the essay is exactly the same every time they write one, <laughs> except for the except for the opening line. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I should no, but this one, keep an this eye one, on it this. really works, and actually, it came. You know, the the uh, idea of being part Harry Flashman, which of course I mentioned in Latifs, but part <laughs> Harry Potter. I didn't mention Latifs, and a little bit of Jane Austen again. Uh, no mention of her in Latifs, <laughs> and here I think it would be really good fun. But I'd like to think that these are the guys who, in Star Wars terms, come out of the Imperial TIE Fighter Pilot Academy, but then climb into an X-Wing and fight the good fight hmm. against the hegemony. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I, mean, I really like that. It's an excellent piece, Matt. And I think there is, you know, back on that Alarms Temple thing, you could easily have a scenario campaign where the uh, the, the, the Judicator has been specifically primed as a uh, as a as a spy as a double agent going into that yeah. specifically to try and bring down the hegemony from from the inside so i think that'd be great definitely cool. i i think the hegemony makes uh, a realm of possibilities for having if you like a problem which is that you've you know you've got to be working against them from the inside or you you want nothing to do with them but they still you're still of a loyal bloodline enough and yeah they want you to be working on their side i think there's there's some great moral um uh dualities and decision making mm. to be made in adventures mm. but i can't ever see myself thinking that the zenithian hegemony are ever going to be the good guys yeah nope that sounds good to me and it's nice actually to find somebody who's properly evil. Actually, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to hating the Zenithian hegemony. Um, uh, whereas, as I say, everybody else has got good and bad parts. But um, and it gives me. Have we done one of these on the Draconites yet? Um, I don't think we have actually. No, we've done so. I many want of to them explore now. the Draconites and. See, because they, you know, they were the first guys to effectively turn against the Zenithian hegemony. Um, yes. So they know their dark, evil secrets. Uh, uh, we, I think, we need to explore their motivations a bit more that, at some. That's point. That's really in interesting, isn't episode. it? Because I think maybe the the Draconites broke off from the Zenithians specifically because of this, rather mm. than for any other reason. They're like, we're not. We can see the way this is going, and we want. No truck with any of this. We want nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. We'll have to we'll have to delve into their history. I can, and I can see feel some homework find. coming on for somebody, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> right, actually, but that does bring us neatly onto the future of well, kind of neatly onto the future of this podcast. Yeah, because um, we were thinking, you and I, earlier on, but we thought we'd we'd have this discussion in public and mm-hmm. we could uh, get some feedback from our listeners, we were thinking about expanding the scope. Um, well, as you said, Dave, actually, 
we already, in, in terms of the podcast and the feed as a whole, it's already got a pretty expansive scope. We've only ever done one Coriolis actual play, uh, whereas we've done a bunch of the other Freelagan games and Simbaroom, which is now also a Freelagan game. Yeah. Um, but we've also talked, you know, in the last episode, we talked quite a lot about um, Forbidden Lands. I can see us talking about Forbidden Lands some more. Mm. In fact, I'm going to do an essay where there's a Forbidden Lands adventure where you're all working in a, some sort of college or university and having adventures and wearing really smart uniforms. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, the idea for how that could happen has just happened in my head now. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so uh, and also uh, the interesting thing uh, that I pointed out a week or so ago to you, Dave, uh, on email, our uh, Ravenland Tales, our Forbidden Lands actual play, has been one of the most eagerly downloaded uh, episodes we have ever put out. Yeah. The, 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 the Session Zero recording went out, um, I can't remember exactly what date, but I, at um, uh, 30 days after that had gone out, I noticed that it had 417 downloads, mm-hmm. which is almost half as many as our episode one has had. Yes. Uh, but that's in a month. So, you know, that that is rapidly, it isn't our most downloaded episode yet, but it's our fastest downloaded episode. So it strikes me there's a real interest in Forbidden Lands. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think also maybe, you know, you, we did, like say when we were talking about this earlier, you made the point that science fiction role playing is perhaps a little bit niche compared to the fantasy side of it. And maybe part of the interest around Forbidden Lands is um, is coming from that huge base of D and D players, perhaps some who are you know, into the fantasy side of stuff. You know, have only played D and D maybe, yeah. but are looking for another uh, another setting in order to, to to move that forward, and maybe you know looking for a new rule set. And obviously, the free league, you know, Year Zero engine is becoming very very popular because it's very good. So maybe that's part of the reason why there's such interest in it. But I, yeah, I mean, in terms of broadening our scope, uh, as we said before, our scope is quite broad anyway. I mean, in the world of gaming part of the podcast, we talk about anything we like, um, although we are mm-hmm. focused a lot on free league and stuff. Um, as you say, the actual plays are largely not Coriolis actual plays. Um, we do talk about other things. So I, I think you know if if we if if we more sort of formally broaden our scope a little bit and maybe have the odd bit of homework about uh, a game that isn't Coriolis but still obviously maintain the Coriolis element because we both love it. I think we're not actually doing anything particularly drastic. What we're doing is just evolving what we're doing now. Yeah. So you know already we've we realised that at some future episode, maybe the next episode, we'll look at the Draconites. But I'm wondering whether, well. Here's a great example. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, the latest Simbaroom adventure, which you're about to edit and will be publishing uh, <coughs> online shortly. Uh, in that game, uh, we experimented with a an adapt adaptation of the dice mechanic. Yeah. So, well, we could talk about that now if you want, but that could be one of our pre-recorded essays that we like to sprinkle the program with. Really, that's the only thing that would be changing is up until now that 
essay content, for want of a better word, homework, mm-hmm. uh, has always been specifically Coriolis. And I think what we're talking about is, should we expand that to cover, uh, particularly now, the whole stable of Free Elegan games, including Simbaroon? Yeah. Well, I think my, my sense is that we probably should, but we should obviously maintain the interest on Coriolis. And particularly, I mean, we've done a lot of stuff on Coriolis now in the last year and a half. And, you know, I think maybe we could focus our Coriolis uh, attention on stuff that other people, our listeners, might like to hear us talk about. So maybe if the listeners could let us know things that they particularly enjoyed or things that we haven't done that they would particularly like us to to rabbit on about, um, then feedback through any of the any of the mechanisms that we've got. Um, but yeah, on the Simbroom dice pool. So... Um, well, as a player, I would be interested in your views initially, Matthew. Well, uh, so do you, do you want to explain a little bit about the dice ball mechanic that you suggested? Or did we talk about this last week? We did a little did bit, but it doesn't, in... doesn't hurt to, to reprise that, does it? Okay. So um, for those who don't know, Simbaroom is a 1d20 game. You have a target number based on your attribute, which is then modified by the attribute of the thing you're acting against up or down and then you roll your d20 if you get under that number uh, equal to under you succeed if you get over it you fail and we've talked long and long and long and boringly i suspect now about uh how as players how we, how we don't like how, how we don't really like it <laughs> <clears throat> so i uh in, had an idea so as a player, you can now choose to roll from 1 to 3 d20 on any given task. Um, rolling 1 acts exactly as the rules was written. Rolling 2 or 3 gives you a greater chance to succeed, but if you succeed, your success will be of a lesser uh, lesser quality. And that was basically the only change. And found in the game that... Uh, I think my experience, but Matthew, let's say if you disagree... There were times, certainly early on, when players chose to roll more dice. But I felt that that became less and less as the game progressed. Um, and then yeah. towards the end, so, I think Tony did throw in a couple of 3D20 skill uh, tasks, skill attempts. But I think that was when he was about to get killed or something. Yeah, I think Tony Tony used the opportunity more yep. to to use uh, multiple dice than me. I can't really remember whether Andy used it at all. I'm not remembering him doing it often. I think if he did, he did a couple all. of times, but not much. No. Yeah, um, I very much wanted to hold it in reserve. I very much felt this was a bit like. I, I'm not a big fan, and in fact, I remember doing this in the adventure as well, because you said this rule could still count. I'm not a big fan in spending an XP to re-roll the dice, uh, because uh, if, when you re-roll the dice, it's another binary decision. Yeah, um, I think I agree. And you've lost an XP for it. I did yeah. actually do it in this game, which is very rare. Um, and I like having maybe that option around, but there's... What what got me is narratively there were times when I wanted to make an extra special effort, and that's when I rolled multiple dice. Yeah, um, and it worked for me at the level I used it. I think I wouldn't ever do it as much as Tony did it. Um, 
And it kind of made me feel a bit happier that knowing that was an option, it made me feel a bit happier with just the 1D20. Okay. As well. I don't know why. <laughs> just having that as an option made me feel I was more willing to risk a binary result on 1D20. Right. Right. Okay. So would you want to continue using that when we play in a week or two's time? Yes, I think is my short answer. I guess that's the acid test, isn't it? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, though, uh, because I didn't use it a lot, it's nice to have that in your armoury mm. as a player uh, without necessarily using it. I mean, what I'm really into, uh, the other thing we, we also kind of discovered uh, or reminded ourselves of in play was that actually you can improve your stats, which I thought our stats were kind of fixed in stone. That's true, yeah. Uh, but you can spend XP on, on improving your stats, which and they're directly related to what you roll in the dice, your stats. So um, so I'm kind of more interested in, in saving XP and improving some of my the stats that let me down on defence rolls and things like that. Yeah. But, um, well, I think but, it's yeah, interesting. I, like I mean, if, in my armory. I think the, the, the main point for me in tweaking the the dice mechanic was to increase the pleasure for the for my players um rem, mm. rem, <laughs> you know what i mean <clears throat> um, you can tweak my dice mechanic anytime <laughs> darling your wife already suspects us of, ha us of having an affair matt so i mean you know that doesn't help i don't suppose um nah. but uh if 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 nothing else if what it's achieved is a softening of the oh hell feeling when you fail on a one d twenty dice roll because there is an option that you could have taken, then then it, I think it's worked for me because that's the yeah. thing that we don't yeah. like. It's the it's the rolling the dice success or fail. Boom, you know you you're, you're done. Um, if it softens that pain, even if you don't roll more than one dice very often, then yeah, then I think it's worked. Yes. Cool. Good. Excellent. Um, so, um, so yeah. So, just come back to the the point of this. We got a little bit distracted by <laughs> our, our dice roll because we. What we're saying is we could have that sort of discussion in one of our pre-recorded statements about one of the other systems. So, two things we want to hear back from our fans of Coriolis uh, of the Coriolis effect. Um, uh, do you think that's the direction we should be going in? We firmly do. So if you all say no, we might just disagree with you. Um, <laughs> but also, we're not wanting to uh, to stop talking about Coriolis at all. Um, and so if there are things that you want us to talk about and investigate, shout and we will do that. And I guess that actually that applies not just to Coriolis, does it? It applies to, you know, what do you want us to talk about in Forbidden Lands or Tales from the Loop? Yeah, completely. Or Mutant Year Zero, even. Yeah. I mean, we've hardly ever talked about that. And that was the game that got you, Dave, into this system. Absolutely, so, yeah. Um, completely. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll not be talking much about Mutant Year Zero because I've never played it. But I, I do have the rules. <laughs> um, and Simbaroom, of course. And anything else that um, that these guys might be bringing out in the future um but anyway yeah. yes give us your feedback mostly via google plus while it's still there because that's where we get the best feedback from but in in all your other ways we ought to create a little recorded bullet dave that that says these are the ways in which you can contact us. Oh, we should actually um, yeah 
so we might do that yeah, and, and slot it into future scenarios. Yeah. But as we've said, uh, as we said earlier on in the scenario, contact us uh, at the Coriolis cast on Twitter, uh, on our Facebook page, on G+, for the next few months at least, yeah. uh, on uh, Coriolis at uh, fictionsuit.org uh, on email. And... Um, any, any, any other method? Send us a any other way you like. If, yes. <laughs> you know, we're there. But we want to hear your feedback and we want to hear your instructions about what you'd like yeah, us to talk yeah. about. Well, and having talked about talking about Coriolis, I think we should move on. And I've done a little bit of work about a spaceship that I've called the Star Singer City Ship, but which is based entirely on the Liberator from Blake 7. The Star Singer City Ship a.k.a. the Liberator. The local natives didn't know what it was, that strange, ungodly structure that seemed to be all spires and twisted metal trying to burst out from under the ground. It had been there longer than their tribal memory could recall, and as far as they knew, had been there since the dawn of time, dark and cold. Their elders were right in one thing, though. It was ancient and powerful, but they were wrong to worship the place wrong to treat it as holy ground. But they were little more than primitive natives, what would they know? What would anyone know, had they happened to come across this desolate and lonely place? No one in the Third Horizon had ever before seen its like. When Matt suggested that I might like to design a ship he planned to use in the next scenario in the now rather inappropriately titled Mukfar campaign, I thought it was a bit odd for a player to design a ship for his GM that the player hasn't even found yet, and indeed, the character doesn't even know he's going to find at all. But it was a fun opportunity to take an old ship from a classic old BBC sci-fi series, Blake 7, and write it up for the game. The fact that Yafet Otho would be finding the ship, hopefully in the next game, was a bit weird, but I guess neither here nor there, really. I started by thinking about the class of ship it should be. Matt had said that there needed to be lots to explore, so we were looking at a class 4 at least, and that's what I went for in the end. In Blake 7, the Liberator, at least according to some fan sites I've looked at, was enormous, dwarfing ships like the USS Enterprise, but that just felt too big. I could have gone for a class 5 ship, which would have given me 40 modules to play with instead of the 20 a class 4 ship gets, but for me a class 5 ship bulk haulers and their ilk, are slow and lumbering beasts, and the Liberator was certainly not slow. My design left her with a speed of one and a manoeuvre of minus one, something that can't be much improved for a ship as big as a class 4 ship. But it also gave her an extra energy point and super sensors to give her a tactical advantage. She also has the artefact True Intelligence, as listed in the Artifacts and Faction Tech Supplement, to simulate the Liberator's intelligent computer, Zen. It's on page 10 of the supplement. Of the 20 modules, I had to have three as weapon bays, the three arms of the Liberator, but have left the choice of weapon to Matt. Well, I can't do it all for him now, can I? I added two modules for cabin suites, and then a lot of the usual stuff you'd expect. Stasis hold, workshop service station and a salvage station, cargo bay. But there were three areas I had what I thought anyway were some pretty whizzy ideas. 
First, we'd need a ship's hangar, as the Liberator is not able to enter the atmosphere. This module would consist of a long entry tube designed to perfectly fit a highly specific Class II shuttle that delivers the crew deep into the interior of the ship. No other Class II ship could fit, but a Class I fighter or runaround could navigate the tubular hangar with a bit of careful piloting. Second, we'd need a med bay too, but to recognise the unexplained and almost mystical provenance of the ship, I added a chrysalis pods as the means of medicine on this ship, and not a more traditional or recognisable medical setup. You can find these on page 2 of the Artifacts book. They are very powerful artifacts, and can heal wounded people back to full health in a few hours, even those critically wounded. Ah, that's cool, but no good if you're dead, I can hear you say. But that's where you'd be wrong. A chrysalis pod can even bring the recently dead back to life. At a pretty high price in darkness points, though. In my mind, I think these units, which are built into the structure, or perhaps even grew from the structure organically, to avoid the inevitable character temptation to take one out and go and sell it on the black market, look a bit like the alien navigator that Kane and Dallas found in the Promethean ship before Kane got himself facehugged. I suspect that Matt might only allow one, or if he's feeling really generous, two, of these to be operational when Yafet, Salah and Salem find the ship. But we'll see. And third, last but not least, the chapel. As this ship is from who knows where, and had perhaps a very special purpose when it was created eons ago, I'm thinking it's devoted to just one icon, namely the aspect of the traveller called the Star Singer. This icon is the spreader of wisdom and anchors reality with song and story. As such, throughout the ship, a faintly heard chorus of what feels like millions of raptured voices sings in perpetuity. The faint hum of the ship, if you will. There's nowhere in the ship where you can't make out its glorious refrain, but the sound is louder and more beautiful the closer you get to the Star Singer's Chapel. Even seemingly dead and literally buried on this planet that's been its home for however long, the few natives who ventured inside its halls could still make out a tenuous echo of songs once sang and stories told and retold. I said there were three areas, but I forgot the last thing to mention. I left seven module slots unassigned in my design. These represent the depths of the ship that remain unexplored, within which who knows what horrors may lurk, or wonders may wait to be found. I'll put the design, such as it is, up on rpggods.org, but as it's Matt's game to run, he may well have a different take on the ideas that I've put forward here. Well, Dave, uh, you're right. It is strange for me to give you the homework of building the ship that you are going to discover. <laughs> uh, the reason I did that, I just want to explain to our listeners why I did that. Um, one is because I asked the adventure. Well, <laughs> no, the adventure has deprived you of the Mukafar, which is a ship that you had designed for the crew in that campaign. Yeah, and you may never see again. Um, I'm glad I didn't take. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want to take the ship you'd designed away without at least giving you the chance to design. Well, I'm glad uh, this ship. I'm glad I hadn't taken and, the talent of uh, this is my ship. There are many like it, but this one is mine because I'd been really pissed off then. <laughs> yeah, um, and so uh, and you know, 
you might not actually take this ship off the planet. There may be another solution you come to. Um, I, I I don't know what it is. Um, you may decide that you just want to be kings of the prison planet and become cannibals and eat all the other prisoners. Uh, it's entirely up to you what you do. <laughs> but I wanted to have the opportunity of an ancient ship having crashed on here that requires some problem solving. But yeah. you know you. you, you you could have that as a way of getting off the planet. And I thought, since I've deprived you of a ship you designed, it was the least I could do <laughs> to to let you design this ship again. And the brief I gave you was, it's the Liberator. Um, so the, the idea I'd had in the scenario was, you know, there's this, what looks like, I don't know, an ancient city or some ancient monument of four towers poking up out of the ice Um of uh, this particular part of the planet that you might find. Um, so head north, that's a clue. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> hmm, uh, I, think, I think we want to go south. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, to the to the equatorial burning belt um, <laughs> where you die. Die in and the desert. We all start doing a new ship. No, um, so anyway, uh, I have this idea of the sort of spires um coming out of the ice covered in ice themselves and then you guys exploring this um and finding that it was a ship and being able to repair it and it was liberator uh in my head hmm. um so i said to you design the liberator and so you have done so i also gave you a name for it which was not the star singer um don't remember and it was i can't remember exactly what the name was i've got it somewhere but it's not important because I googled Liberator and it gave me the word and I said that's what we'll call it in Arabic um, and then and then you googled that word back into English and it was something like library clerk <laughs> yeah, that, yes that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Google um, translate for the win get in there <laughs> so yeah. so we scrapped that name but uh i like this name i do have a name for you know and i love i hadn't thought about this but you know you you'd dug out of the um that excellent supplement of artifacts and and mm. uh faction tech uh you dug out a true intelligence which is perfect because i wanted something in my you know i hadn't I hadn't even articulated in my head what I wanted, but it was something more than the ship's intelligence. And there you go, you've got that. So that's brilliant. Cool. So that's definitely there. Uh, it won't be called Zen. <laughs> I've got a name for it. You'll discover. It may even be. Well, no. If I tell you too much about the scenario, no, don't. You'll just yeah. Don't tell me anymore about the scenario. <laughs> um, We're going to call it Orac. And uh, no, it won't be Orac. But <laughs> no, don't say any more than that. Okay. It'll be more like Zen. It'll be more like Zen. Um, and it will probably have. Um, Zen's personality or something like it I don't know uh, I'm, anyway, I'm going to have to uh, watch Blake 7 again now <laughs> uh, the chrysalis pods I thought was another thing that you got out of the artifacts that make it I love you know I want this to feel ancient and you've you've done that as well have you done floor plans for this I haven't done floor plans uh, kind of deliberately because there's quite a lot of it that is still you know, you wanted it to be unexplored and there to be depths to the ship. Um, I could do some floor yes. plans of the just the bit that we've sort of got access to. Well, I think probably don't uh, at the moment. Um, we might, I'm, uh, we may fudge this, but obviously, I'd like to create something that's a bit of an exploring adventure for. Well, not so much for you because you know you're in a ship, but maybe the other players won't 
necessarily recognize it as a ship until they get to some of it so yeah i've got to do some very clever floor plans that work in whatever dimension you know the the east has got to feel like a number of towers where whether those decks are arranged so that they look like floors in a tower or whether it looks like you've got to climb up long chasms or whatever right leave that to me yep. i've got a week before we play this <laughs> um I can't promise actual floor plans, but I can promise at least a verbal description of it. Well, on that on that note, um, I had thought about um, maybe this ship, is, you know, the creators of this ship were very different. You know, they weren't necessarily human even. And perhaps the ship itself is was designed by a species that were perhaps a bit like the emissaries that lived in very low or zero G. And actually, the ship itself has got no gravity generators on it, and so the, mm. so the ship is actually a zero g ship, and therefore the internal setup would be set up with you know no up, with no up and no down because it's all zero g. Well, there's an interesting thought, but I didn't put that into the piece because I sort of ran out of time. But that's I had that going yeah. through my mind when I was thinking about it. Right. Well, um, yeah. Let me think on that some more. Hmm. Um, uh yeah, uh, the, you know that then start starts us building the portal builder community in a way that hasn't been touched on at all. Yeah, it starts defining, I should say. So that's an idea. Hmm. Let, let me let me mull that over. Um, yeah. So you will discover the ship. Have you got a ship sheet for it? Have you got a, you know, a form, uh, a character sheet, um, a ship sheet? I haven't yet, but I can do. That's not a problem. I've. I, cool. I did. I did uh, email you with the stats ages and ages ago when we first talked about it. So I've got the stats. Oh yes, you did. Um, so those stats, there, yeah, that'll be fine. Yeah. No, don't worry about. Cool. Okay, I will uh, take all of that on board. Cool. I'm looking forward to playing this adventure. Yeah, me too. And we'll have it next week, and hopefully we'll record it. And unlike the last recording we made, which was. Did we ever get that going? Which one? No, we couldn't, could we? The the recording we did of um, that adventure where you guys ended up in prison, or uh, you guys ended up. No, there was there was dead. something wrong with the recording, wasn't there? We were using two mics did, and two different computers. Did we even? It's what persuaded me to get this rig. I'm not sure we even recorded that one. That that Coriolis game, did we? We recorded Simbaroom game then. Oh, we might not yeah. even have recorded it. Maybe we didn't. No. Seems odd if we didn't, but um. But yeah, so yeah. um, yeah. Given given the environment, hopefully we'll have a recording of it, yeah. so you can, uh, people can listen, knowing that these guys are discovering a ship when when Tony and Andy at least have no idea. Well, unless of course Tony listens to this podcast before then. Don't oh, damn <laughs> damn. <laughs> Uh, our plans are foiled once again. <laughs> foiled again. Spoilers. <laughs> okay. I could, tell, right. I could just well, tell Tony um, not to listen to this before the weekend. Yes, I've got a prep. We might not even get it out before the weekend if I'm doing the editing. So uh-huh. um, let's wait and see. Well, if if, you, if I did the editing, then I'm going to postpone getting the Simba Room stuff done. <laughs> right. No. So. No. That's okay. We'll do it. Uh, there will be next week at least an episode of Simba Room or an episode of the Coriolis Effect. Um, hopefully both. And hopefully both, yeah. Brilliant. Um, 
And I guess that's it. Uh, so in our next episode, uh, we may have even more exciting news about our time at Dragon Meat, um, uh, as our plans with Freer Legan yeah. and with the podcast zone firmer. Well, on that note, um, I'm going to give you some homework to give me, actually. So, oh yes, um, yes. So no, no, you. We've discussed this already. We have, yeah. So I have got homework for you. Go on then. Uh, so. What started out as a very vague idea that we might get people creating characters and then pitch pairs against each other in a fight to the death um, slightly solidified around one of the locations that we read about in Raven's Purge campaign. But we don't know enough about it. So your homework is to tell us all about Grindbone, the slaver town in Raven's Purge campaign. I will do Exactly that. Cool. And, you know, if you want to expand on it a little bit to talk about this annual festival that happens where uh, player characters get paired up and forced to fight each other for the entertainment of the uh, the masses, then, um, then by all means do so. Well, I'll have a look. I'll have a read and see what I can come up with. But, yeah, next time I will report back on Grindbone. Cool. Grindbone. And and maybe maybe we should be looking as well at the um, uh, at the Draconites. Shall I do that? Yes, I think you should look at the Draconites. That sounds like a great idea. That is, unless in any of the feedback, uh, people's suggestions about what we should be looking at are even more exciting. <laughs> well, that's the challenge, guys. Make your suggestions even more <laughs> exciting than this. God, that's going to be a hard. Okay, one. so. Yeah, don't don't make they'll obviously because what we produce is pure gold, so people will be so intimidated they won't make any suggestions. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, our, our um, less than an hour episode is now going to come in at about an hour and a half as usual. So as usual, it's probably yeah. time for us to sign off. So it's uh, I'm sure it is. It's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from me. And may the icons bless your adventures. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Font Fabric. <laughs>